0: Let's get agreement that this is a strategic part.
1: area of alignment and synergy can be very Working
0: important. To the future, we're committed to expand value
1: exciting time. There's still progress that needs to be made. This
0: is Healthcare Strategies.
1: Hi, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Sarah Heath, Managing Editor at Extelligent Healthcare Media and the lead writer on Patient Engagement HIT. Health equity has come to be a common refrain throughout the healthcare industry, with organizations and stakeholders nationwide calling for more efforts to close the gap in outcomes among different demographic groups. But although industry leaders have no intention of being exclusionary, some groups are sometimes left out of that health equity conversation. Here to talk about one of those oft-forgotten populations is Dr. Colin O'Reilly, the vice president and CMO as Children's Specialized Hospital. Part of RWJ Barnabas Health in New Jersey, Children's Specialized Hospital focuses on the healthcare needs of populations with special needs or disabilities. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. O'Reilly.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for addressing this really important topic.
1: Yeah, of course. I guess maybe just to kick things off, if you wanted to describe a bit about what your organization does, you know, the, the population that you treat, your missions, and and what you guys do differently from other healthcare organizations.
0: Sure. I get the very fortunate opportunity to lead Children's Specialized Hospital from a a medical standpoint. We are the nation's largest provider of pediatric acute rehabilitative services. So our primary flagship entity is a pediatric acute rehab hospital here in New Brunswick, New Jersey. But outside of the inpatient acute rehab setting, we also see over 35,000 children throughout New Jersey and the tri-state area for specialized pediatric needs. So our patient population are really kids who have specialized needs. Some of them have very complex or chronic diseases who require a different level of attention than your neurotypical child. Some of our services that we offer, apart from inpatient rehab, we also have multiple pediatric long-term care facilities. And we have several outpatient facilities throughout New Jersey offering services like specialized pediatric care, rehabilitative medicine, physical medicine and rehab. We've seen a huge impact on mental health services during the pandemic in the pediatric population. And we offer psychiatry and psychology services to our kids. And we offer a full complement of therapies as well, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, audiology. So really, any child with a special health care need, we are in the business of helping them reach their full potential.
1: Speaking of reaching their full potential, the WHO says people with disabilities, you know, have this higher risk for premature death and illness. And I was wondering if you could kind of describe some of the factors that might have led to this disparity and particularly kind of health system factors, I guess, to begin with. You know, in what way are health systems not necessarily set up to help folks with disabilities achieve that well-being?
0: Yeah. So really complex question here. (laughs) These kids need a different level of understanding and health anticipation for what they're going to need in the future. Most of these kids who are coming to us don't have just one disease or one specific diagnosis. They have several. And with each compounding diagnosis requires another level of specialists. And once you get to that complexity of care, you need to have really enhanced communication, you need to have care coordination, and you have different levels of needs and supports for the families and for those children to really make sure that everybody is on the same page and everybody is looking towards that same end goal, which is the patient's what we call total health Right? Mm-hmm. We need to work on their mind, their body, and their spirit all together mm-hmm. um, to make sure that we're coordinating care to get these kids to their full potential.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wanted to touch a little bit on that patient-provider communication aspect that you mentioned. What kind of specialized either training or even just specific considerations keep in mind do providers need to ensure that they're communicating effectively? With this population and you know i want to make sure that we're also talking about caregivers here too it's a pediatric population and caregivers for all populations are important so what do we need to keep in mind for this population
0: great question it all starts out from a perspective of empathy and compassion for the families you really need to as the caregiver take a step back and put yourself in that family's position and think about all of the complexities of the care that they're dealing with we, we do something with some of our young trainees where in our outpatient sites, we have them just sit at the window and look at the level of care and attention that's needed for a parent just to physically bring in a very complex child into the office. It takes a lot of extra time. It takes different consideration. And the impact on these families is great to begin with, right? And we need to recognize that as care providers, as a basic step one of how we're approaching the care for these kids. These kids are also not your neurotypical child. So they're not going to have the regular developmental milestones and you don't provide the same anticipatory guidance that you would do with a neurotypical child. You have to mold how you are going to discuss goals of care with a family based on a child's underlying issue and problem and also level of functioning. Yeah. Right? You're going to have to really take into account the family dynamics and the family supports and the needs of that family to be able to get that kid to achieve total health. So so when it comes to special considerations for this population, it is a totally different level of care that we're talking about that we deliver to these kids. Because if you think you've thought of everything, you're missing something.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to zero in when you were talking about the process of even bringing the child into the clinic for their checkup or whatever, how much more arduous it might be for certain parents or caregivers. And I wanted to hear a little bit about what you guys have had to do to your clinic or hospital built environment to make sure that you are just as accessible to this population as you would be for regularly able populations.
0: Yeah. So, so the key word that you touched on there, Sarah, was accessibility, mm-hmm. right? There are, there are considerations that we really need to make for the physical layout of the structures of our healthcare sites for these families. And we're really, really fortunate at Children's Specialized Hospital and within our network, because we tap into something called family faculty. We have mm-hmm. an entire department of staff members who we have hired, who are parents of current or past patients. And one thing that we've done as we've designed new spaces to provide healthcare, we've actually brought the family faculty into the design team. Mm -hmm. so that they can talk to us about what it's like to be one of these families to bring these children in. How much space do you actually need? Where is ideal parking? How do you create different ramps and different access places? How do you engage a family if you know that there's going to be a waiting room, possibly with children with autism? Mm -hmm. What types of separate spaces may you need in the evaluation and treatment of that patient? And what type of therapy services are you going to need To really coexist with the medical services that you're offering there. So I think the most important thing that we have here is the perspective of the families and the patients, which we've really incorporated into the design of the areas where we provide care.
1: And I wanted to shift the conversation a little bit to almost kind of a social determinants of health conversation because, of course, there are health system factors that might be driving some of these disparities. But as you and me and all of our listeners know, most of health is influenced outside of the clinic. So I wanted to hear a little bit about some of those obstacles outside of the hospital or clinic that are influencing an individual with disabilities' path to well-being and what you see the hospital's role as you know, a community pillar, an anchor institution, you named the buzzword, in advocating for patients even outside of the clinic.
0: Yeah, great point. As you know, 80% of a person's healthcare outcomes are dictated by the social determinants of health, right? Things that are occurring with them outside of what happens in a doctor's office, what happens to them outside of their therapy sessions. We know that if a family doesn't know where they're gonna get their next meal, or doesn't know where they're going to sleep that night, they're not going to be able to focus their mind on the complexities of care of a child with a complex disease. That's just not where their mind is. They're in survival mode. One thing that we've really done over the past several years is to focus on that social determinants of health. Right now, I can tell you, we screen all of our patients before they come to us for an appointment, whether it be a medical appointment or a therapy appointment. We do this electronically, and for those that don't respond to the electronic survey, we actually have team members who will reach out to those families and screen them. And we're right now getting around a 40% positive screen, meaning 40% of our patients right now have some type of risk factor social determinants of health. And with that data, we're not just surveying and screening them. When they come in for their appointment, their healthcare providers are actually discussing with them what's going on and how we can support that. And we've tied that to many specific resources that we can immediately provide to the family, whether it be a link and access to food banks, and local resources for food. We've actually started in many of our outpatient centers to actually have bags of groceries to give Mm -hmm. to the families after they're done with their visit with us, but also linking them to different advocacy groups, home shelters. You really need to address the social determinants of health as a basic need before you can address anything else that's as complex as the health care of their child. These families also need access to transportation. They're not going to be able to get to their appointments, right? Especially with the complexity of the transportation that their kids require. You need to make sure they have access to transportation. You need to make sure that they have access to simple things that may really greatly impact the health of their child. The electricity in the home, right? The demands of electricity in a home for everyone are great. However, if you have a child with a feeding pump, and a ventilator, that becomes really a risky thing for you if that is something that's at risk in your household. So we take all of these things into our evaluation of the family. But the best thing that we're doing right now is asking the questions before they even come to us. So we can be prepared for those responses. What we're really good about is innovating healthcare. Mm -hmm. And we've looked to really shake it up and change the game and to address things with our patient population proactively. So we've been creating programs for kids with chronic illness and chronic disease. And we'll look at the kids who historically are in the emergency room often or admitted to the pediatric ICUs. And we've created an elective program for them to come in to the hospital for a four week period of time. And we teach them classroom style about their disease. And we have them linked up with certain therapists. They come in, they've been chronically ill, they don't feel well, they work with physical therapy to get physically stronger. Mm. They work with our occupational therapists to figure out how to build the management of their chronic disease into the everyday life of a teenager. Mm -hmm. They work with our medical professionals to understand why it's important that they follow a prescribed regimen or actually what their medications do inside of their body And then we take them out into the community so they can practice their skills. And we require that families participate in these programs so that the education doesn't just go to the patient, it goes to the family. Mm -hmm. We get them cooking classes. We teach them about healthy living. And and these are programs that historically the insurance companies would not pay for.
1: Yeah.
0: Because they didn't understand it. But once they saw the downstream impact where – if we're really choosing to change a child's trajectory and change a child's health early on, it's much better for everybody, right? That the, the kid and the family have better psychological outcomes, they have better quality of life, and it's less impactful from a financial standpoint on the insurance company down the road. So I think we need to have these types of care delivery systems in which we look at what's the best proactive approach to address social determinants of health mm-hmm. and risk factors to these patients before they come another type of comorbid diagnosis. We yeah. need to we need to get these kids while they're young, and we need mm-hmm. to, to really make that impact on them at this time of their life when they're most impressionable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I can imagine something like that four-week course also improves, you know, adherence to that self-management because you're teaching them how to take care of themselves. So there's such a sense of autonomy and ownership over their health, which must be so, so important instead of just let me take care of you. It's let me show you how to take care of yourself. So I really love that. One of my
0: favorite parts about that is also when kids come to this program, kids who previously had a sense of isolation, who maybe had never met another child with their same disease, Mm -hmm. they come to this type of program, and they meet other kids who are struggling Mm -hmm. with the same thing at the same times in their lives. And that sense of isolation just kind of melts away. And they develop a really strong support network and recognize they're not the only ones out there. So seeing the benefits of this from the impact on healthcare, but just the psychological impact on these kids, it's Mm -hmm. really outstanding to watch.
1: Yeah, building community That's really, that's very beautiful. Um, I wanted to take a moment to talk a little bit about the referral network that you might have for social determinants of health. I think that this is something that a lot of organizations are starting to get the ball rolling on of just like, okay, if I'm going to refer someone for food insecurity, I'm going to send them here because that's who's expecting my patients. I wanted to hear about some of the considerations that you guys might need to make in building out that referral? What do you have to consider when sending someone to that food pantry?
0: Yeah, that's a, another you know great question. And it's kind of like, the, if you build it, they will come. When we started screening for social determinants of health, I think it, we had an idea of how many people were at risk, but to see a 40% positivity rate is really astounding, right? And you see the, the implications of the last three years of the pandemic and what it's done to these families is really in many ways heart-wrenching. But the considerations in how you bring the resources to the families, I think is an evolving solution across the nation, right? Because there is such a great demand and need. How to get the right resources to these families and patients is is a challenge. One example for us And this is where we tapped into the expertise of our family faculty group. We had bags of groceries for our patients when they left. However, our patients are very proud, just like anyone else. And they didn't want to be leaving with what looked like a handout. And our family faculty recognized this. And they actually changed the types of bags that we gave the resources out to the families in. And that type of consideration, I think, is really important to have So you're linking the families to resources that, one, they're going to use, and two, they know that are going to be there for them going forward. Other things that we've started to tap into is really that transportation. And we're using certain types of modalities and and different research projects looking at no-show cancellation rates and using artificial intelligence to try to predict no-show cancellation. And what we're finding is the no-show cancellation is not because the majority of patients just don't want to come to see their medical provider. Mm. Oftentimes, it's because of an issue with social determinants of health. So we're looking at these research projects with our artificial intelligence and no-show cancellation predictable model and trying to overlap it with the social determinants of health screening. To see which kids are coming and who are not, and if they are missing their appointments, is it because of some type of risk factor they have, and how do we supplement that? Do they need the transportation? Do they have a parent who can't miss work, you know, can't take off one more day because they may lose their job? That's the crux of what we need to do in medicine going forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just you know, to wrap things up, I know one of the themes that I introduced at the top of the episode was the idea that... When we talk about health equity, we aren't always talking about populations with disabilities. And I wanted to hear a little bit of your take about what more organizations or even just the industry overall can do to ensure that this population isn't forgotten when we plan these health equity initiatives.
0: Yeah. So one is invite them into the conversation, Mm. right? I think that's the most important thing. How many boards do you have or boards of insurance payers that have people with disabilities who sit in a decision-making capacity, right? There needs to be a higher representation of this population in entities that are going to really mold how the care is given in the future. So, So number one, there needs to be a greater representation of people with disabilities and families with children with disabilities in the decision-making entities of healthcare going forward. That's invaluable, right? We've Mm -hmm. learned so much from our family faculty and from our patients and from our families. That's what really needs to shape and mold decision-making going forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad that we were able to bring your voice to the table, at least with this podcast episode. Thank you so much again for joining us today, Dr. O'Reilly.
0: Yeah, greatly appreciate you covering this topic. Listeners, we would love to hear your insights on this topic as well. So if you have any thoughts that you would like to share or any questions or topics that you think that we should cover in future episodes, please reach out to me at kwedill at intelligentmedia.com. That's K-W-A- D D I L L at to share your thoughts. And also don't forget to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Thanks for listening. This is a Tech Target production.